Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I'm very jealous, very jealous that Rabbi Renner got to study Kitisa with y'all last week. Um, yeah? Did he say I was really upset that... That on Friday morning he got Kitisa with y'all? And you My had, group? And you had to suffer. And I had to suffer at the resort in the desert with 50 Jewish women. <laughs> the things we rabbis do to serve the Jewish people. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. We. Uh, I wish you know. There's a Yiddish saying that one tush can't dance at two weddings. So I sometimes I wish I could dance at two weddings and could have been in two places at once. But I understand Rabbi Rabbi Renner had a wonderful time with all of you, uh, and um, and so he spoke with you about the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf. Yes. So you, and we spoke about that in the desert, of course, as well. Um, this whole business of the the greatest, our most painful memory as a people, our mythic moment of betrayal, our mythic moment of betraying um, the divine call who calls us into relationship, um, and because we don't have the capacity sometimes to wait to hold our seat to face the unknown, to face what we don't control, they panic. And in their panic, and you know, I'm sure he spoke with you, we spoke in the desert about we're not, there's so many levels about what exactly was the sin, right? What, what exactly was the turning away? Since they call the calf yud heh it's not apostasy. They're not worshiping another god. It's something about the way they were worshiping <laughs> Yudhevave seems to be the problem. <laughs> so they they have this moment of, of turning away in their panic because that's what we do, right? That's what we talked about, um, and we talk about every time we revisit this story, that that's what we as human beings do. When we when it's not looking like the way we want it to look, we start reaching and grabbing for anything familiar to settle us down. Um, stuff that used to work in Egypt, right? If we just worship this bull god, that seemed to work in Egypt. That's something we know about. Let's try that. We shopping works, doesn't it? Right? I could always take a nap, find somebody to have sex with, right? there. There's lots of ways that we reach out to, like, do something that's going to be familiar and settle us down. Chocolate, Chocolate says someone to my right. <laughs> Chocolate. So whatever those things are, we tend to reach for them, and of course they are not the things that are going to help, ultimately, and clearly they cause damage in the short term. So we get, so we get the instructions to build the tabernacle, then we get the actual incident of the calf while Moshe's still up there dealing with all of right the things he's receiving. Um, <clears throat> he comes down, sees what's happening, tears up the agreement between God and the people, right? So he takes the actual agreement and tears it up. He breaks 
the tablets. He breaks the agreement because they've abrogated the agreement already. And we have this Egel Masecha, this, this molten calf. Moshe goes back up, God calls Moshe back up the mountain after dealing with punishing the people. And then we get to where we are now, which is the actual building of the Mishkan. Yeah? So I've been playing this year, because you know every year we're different. And so every time we confront the text, we're different. So talk to me about the elements, the main elements involved in both the calf, making the calf, and making the Mishkan. What are some of the elements that are common to both? Gold. 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 Gold, that was fast. Wood. Gold, wood. Cloth, like crimson. So that's not at the calf, that is at the Mishkan, for sure. Large. Large? Community involvement in donating the materials. So the Ada donating. Give me one, there's one more that's really big. Aaron. Ah, interesting. So this year, I've been playing a lot with the calf and the Mishkan being mirror images of each other. The rabbis play with this. Aviva Zornberg plays with this. You know, she's one of my favorites. Um, and in a lot of ways, the rabbis have understood the Mishkan to be the tikkun for the calf. Right? So the, the instinct to relate to something physical, to represent the divine in our lives, is not a problem. They've already been given the instructions to build a Mishkan before the calf. So that doesn't seem to be the impulse that's a problem, does it? Right? Build me a mishkan, v'shachanti b'tocham, that I might dwell among them, that I might dwell in their midst. God seems to get it before even the people do anything, that we need a physical representation, that we need those things to point to, to help carry us past the, the everyday into another realm. Okay, that seems to be all right. There seems to be a line over which when we move over that line, it is a serious breach of our agreement not to idolize. I'll just leave it at that, right? Not not to idolatrize. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mary? It just seems to me, though, that the Mishkan is a sacred space, and the calf is a solid mm -hmm. object. So God's spirit can't dwell in a, in a solid calf or idol, but it dwells in a space that's been defined to be a space for God to dwell in. So they have lots of things in common, not lots, so they have important, I think critically important elements in common. The Mishkan, right, we're clear when we say Mishkan, we mean tabernacle, the portable shrine that they carried with them in the desert. So the Mishkan and the calf have things in common, but they have some important 
differences. And if one is a tikkun for the other, we must look at the differences to find out what's the teaching. If, if the calf is bad, wrong, awful, mm-hmm. impulse to physicalize, wow. and the mishkan is not only okay, but commanded as a physical, you know, delineated something where it's, it's a manifestation of the holy, there has, the places that those differ must be the places that we are supposed to get it the most. That one is good, and one is not. What are those? One is what Mary's saying, which is the calf is solid. This is one, this is one teaching. Either it's wood covered in gold or it's solid gold. But it's solid. It's filled with itself. The Mishkan, right? The Mishkan, on the other hand, is space. That the physical aspects of the Mishkan define space. And that at the center of that space is the, at the very holiest center of that space is the Ark in the Holy of Holies, which is wood and gold, which delineates space as opposed to being filled with itself. And in that space goes... The tablets, which represent the law, law, and the contract, and I'm going to go further and say teaching about how to live, right? Okay. Yes. And also, we have to make space in order to have God in our lives. So I think that's that's, that's the point. Just building on that. Exactly. One. Right. That's the point. That when we are filled with only ourselves. When we point to a reality that is filled with material stuffness, when we point to that and say, this, O Israel, is Yudhei that brought you up out of slavery, we live in a Trump-celebrated society. That, right? That's what happens. We point to, oh, well, let's take the what, let's take the best model of that and make that our leader. The teaching is <laughs> that it's when we empty, it's when we create space, it's when we empty some of our own stuff, when we purge, <laughs> right? When we leave some room, then God has room to move through us to move through our lives. It seems to be a very important message of Mishkan. And then eventually it contains the Torah and our history. Mm. And that is what we connect to. That's why we're here. Mm. Okay, Sarah just said a mouthful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what Sarah just said is that at the center of the Mishkan, what we actually put at our center when we create some room for it, we put our history. Now, you hear me use the word mythic in front of that a lot. Because I think it's more than the history of what happened. That's a great thing, too, to know and to celebrate and to learn from with any people. 
But mythic history says something else. What does it say that history, history doesn't? It's a people's version of what happened. And whoever writes the history book ever, it's their version of what happened. Um, so it's our version of what happened. Tell me more. It's the legend that, that comes up from experience. The legend experience. that grows out of experience. Love that. So it's not unrelated to experience. But it is not limited to what happened. It's what does what happened mean to us as a people? Shared interpretation. So shared interpretation in our tradition, it's an interesting relationship to shared, isn't it? Right? In some traditions, shared interpretation means you have to recite the creed. Because we believe Jesus did, did this and then died and then rose and then right and it died for me and it, it, and so that that's a shared interpretation. Jews have a shared interpretation. We were slaves in Egypt. We went through the water. We slept through the desert. We built the Mishkan. We had this unfortunate cow incident, right? So. That, that is the shared interpretation, and that seems to be where it stops for us as a people, yeah. doesn't it? Because the rest of our history is arguing about what that meant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? And having a plethora of interpretations of the shared original interpretation. Yes? Yes, Laura. For me, what calling it the mythic history does is open it up so much more broadly to people who can't make sense of it as reality. So it's not only that we learn from, you know, generally we think of myths as things that we look to as lessons. You know, what's the moral of this story? What do we gain from it? But also of um, just pulling back the curtain and saying this is an entrance point to this entire story which is, look at it in this light, and then, you, and then it's yours to make of it what you want. Not so what do you mean when you say, here's an entrance point to this story? For what me, story? The Torah, all of it. When I sat here my first couple weeks, I thought, what am I supposed to be thinking when I read this? Am I supposed to be thinking, this is my lesson for the day of what to believe? And you said at one point early on, this is our mythic history. And I went, oh, like Percy Jackson, like Zeus. These are stories I can read and interpret, but I don't have to believe that this is what happened. So that's what I meant by an entry point. So, so it, it's it, a, as it opens history. stuff up rather than here's what happened and you must right. yeah. Otherwise, accept there was that. No, there was no way in for me to... Why would I read this? Why would I care? Right. I don't believe it. Right. So and why would I? Work. And how could I have a relationship with a lot right. of what's here right. if it weren't an See invitation into? Point. Yeah. As mythic history, then it's all rich for the reading. All right, David. Really, one of the things that stuck with me, which unfortunately I, I still can't reconcile, is Aaron's role mm. in this. I mean, he wasn't taken to the woodshed by Moses. I don't quite know why not. What, 
what do we take about Aaron and, and, and what his role in doing all of this? That's why I found it interesting that it came up, you know, to put on the board, right? Because it does seem that Aaron is forgiven in some way, right? He, he's excused from his role. Uh, the rabbi, and, and, and he's given the high priesthood in the Mishkan. So the same thing he did at the calf, he's now asked to do with the Mishkan, right? Which is oversee what's happening. And then once it's constructed and erected, he's to, to um, preside over the ritual, so what's up with that? It, it seems like his role, not only did he get fired, did he not get fired after that, he was promoted to high priest. So the rabbis who need to excuse Aaron have him doing what he did under a great duress that he thought that people were going to kill him. B, um, that he was playing for time. That he was stalling. That he knew Moshe was coming. He knew it couldn't be all that long that Moshe would return. And if he gave them something to do and a way to focus on yud heh vav then it, it, would, it would buy enough time for Moshe to get back and deal. The only, one of the things that we did discuss is that the golden calf was made. Clearly they knew how to fabricate gold. Why didn't they do a golden god? Because that would have been what better? You don't call Yudhei Vavhe any kind of person either. Yeah. Like, so the again, it's Yudhei Vavhe. So if, there, if you're going to go there in the first place, as opposed to not go there, you, it seemed that Aaron was not only not a leader, he was spiritually and morally weak. Okay, so we so let, let's hold that. But I, and I want to be clear when we say the calf, <clears throat> no one thought God was a cow. That is not how, how idolatry works. But that's not how leaders are supposed to lead. So, the the cow, what in the ancient world, the bull was a symbol of virility, of strength, of power. Right. So it is a representation. It's like the Nike. Swoosh. What does a swoosh mean? Absolutely nothing. Unless it becomes a symbol with this whole host of associations with it. That's what the bull was. And the bull, often the god, was, was on top of the bull. Right? And so the bull was the footstool of the god. So if that's true, they, their sin is even less. They didn't make a representation of yud heh vav They created a footstool, imagining the invisible divine on top of it. What's so bad? Right, so we're not going to go back and like stay too long, because that was last week. Um, and I want to I move us a at least tangentially into this week. Do you notice how I'm avoiding a lot of the text? Um, <laughs> Is there any amount of teshuva for Aaron? having made the calf and then going on to sort of rectify the situation? It seems he's not called to do teshuva. 
He had the punishment for all the, for the people doing that was so great. Right. So there, there's an, there is one of the big conflicts. The people who participated got schmeist. Aaron, who was the ringleader of the actual ritual, you know, stuff, got a pass. Ah, that's something different. That is not understood as punishment. Nadav and Avihu do something that causes them to be consumed by the divine. Now, we, we've been studying long enough together that you know there's several interpretations of that. One, his sons, Aaron's sons who die soon, right? They're going to die offering strange fire. There's some who don't even say it's a bad thing, that they got what they wanted. To be unified and one with the divine. Okay. All right. Like a suicide bomber, right? That they wanted to be one with the divine. Well, they got what they wanted. The lesson is that's not what we're supposed to be. It's not okay. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. That's not what this tradition is about, is how to immolate oneself in order to be lost in union with the divine, right? So that, that's, that it's a teaching against that. All right. So I, wa- I want to... I, I am going to turn to the sweet store portion, I promise. Um, let's, so let's look at 30, I, I, and we're going to go to the triennial, which is the last third of the Parsha, but I want to link it to the very first lines of our Parsha. So look at 31 1. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back and link link that to the uh, triennial reading. Sorry, yeah, it's in last week's Parsha. Before they built the calf. So why did Aaron redirect them and say, oh, you guys want to build something? So let's ask that. All right, 31-1. Someone read 31-1 through, uh, I'll tell you when to stop. The Lord spoke to Moses. See, I have singled out by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Thor, of the tribe of Judah. I have endowed him with the divine spirit of skill, ability, and knowledge in every kind of craft, to make designs for work in gold, silver, and copper, to cut stones for setting, and to carve wood, to work in every kind of craft. Moreover, I have assigned to him Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Don. And I have also granted skill to all who are skillful, that they may make everything that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark for the pact, and the cover upon it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand, and all its fittings, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the labor and its stand, the service vestments, the sacral vestments of Aaron the priest, and the vestments of his sons for their service as priests, as well as the anointing oil and the aromatic incense for the sanctuary, just as I have commanded you, they shall do. Okay, so the question was just asked. In terms of timing, they were given instructions, right, to build the Mishkan. Then they have this impulse 
to make something. So the question is, so why didn't Aaron direct them towards starting the work of making the Mishkan? It's so typical, and the table are like... Right. So here's one of the answers. One of the answers is God speaks to Moshe and says, I have singled out Bitzalel, son of Hur, a son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda, and have given him the divine spirit of skill, ability, and knowledge to do this. So not about trust, it seems Aaron doesn't have the skills to do this. So A. Is it because Aaron's not a craftsman? So are we to believe that maybe he did throw the gold into the fire and out popped this calf? <laughs> I get a laugh of derision from Linda. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it seems, and the other thing is that we don't know, there's, there's very specific instructions about how to make all the stuff for the Mishkan. Some of it, however, just leaves us more confused when we read the instructions than before. So in other words, it isn't, okay, just make a menorah with seven branches, five branches, seven branches, whatever, with some flowers on it, right? It's, you will make it exactly as I showed you in the mountain. Showed who? Moshe. So Aaron doesn't know any of this. Moshe's up there getting it when the people are wanting to build now. I want to make something. Have you ever opened the box from Ikea yeah. and started? <laughs> Some people might have done that once upon a time. And right, what you come out with is nothing like what the people who designed it and who writes those instructions? I want to know, right? They are not native English speakers, A. But B. Aramaic. Right, it's Aramaic, right? So you need, you need the instructions and the diagram and the steps in order or what you're going to make is not going to resemble what the goal, what, what the model was. Sarah? The choice Sarah, if I had paid you cash money, I could not be happier with that setup. <laughs> right? So, Bitzal El is the large art school in Israel and is now synonymous with talent. What kind of talent? Artistic talent. This is not... And I don't mean to, to make it the opposite. This is not astrophysics. This is not, there's an art there. This is not neurosurgery. There's an art there. This is something else. There is something else that happens in the artist 
that a lot of people don't have. It's a special talent. And there's lots of talents. Nobody's, nobody's denigrating the other kind of talents, let's be clear. Least of all me. Not the Torah. But it seems that for certain things, you need certain talents. And don't waste that talent, right, Wayne? On stuff that they're not good at. Focus the talent. Unleash the talent. Encourage the talent where it can make something beautiful. And where that beauty can help point people towards the ultimate beauty, capital B, which is beyond anything we can imagine. But that we need ways into whether it's beautiful literature, beautiful Torah covers, right, beautiful buildings, beautiful, 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 beautiful points us towards the ultimate beauty. There's a, a phrase that's hooked to talent. It says God-given talent. And it makes it different from skills that you learn as an apprentice when you go to school. And that's what we recognize in all artists of Great talent. Mm -hmm. So, Linda, because I'm not, I'm not leaving that. I'm coming back to that. But also considering um, the myriad of people, the great numbers of people that were involved in all this, they're building the community to um, accept not only what they're doing, but to accept that God is speaking to them to do this. Mm. So the artist facilitates the conversation between the people and the divine. That is the point that I want to, and I'm bringing you Aviva Zornberg. This is not my idea. Um, that, that is the point. That the artistry, the talent, is to be directed not for the glory of the artist, God forbid, but to facilitate the conversation, the relationship between all the people and the divine. Let's hold that. Let's hold that. Is there any significance to the name of Bitsalel? To me, it sounds ah. like um, sounds like Bitsalem Elohim. Yeah. Nice, 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 nice. So we have two people here. We have Aaron and we have who? Bitsalel. Right? So both of them are supposed to facilitate the conversation, facilitate the relationship between everybody and the divine. What's the difference? Aaron is supposed to preside over what's already given to him. That's his job. Here's the instructions. Right, here's the, you know, and it's all laid up. He's supposed to preside over everything given to him. Here's the Sidur. Here's the microphone. Here's how you turn it on, right? This is where the people sit. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how much time you have. Go, Rabbi. <laughs> Just take what you're given and, and work with it. Big Sal El, on the other hand, Creating. creates. He, it is his job to create what isn't there yet. It's his job to imagine what doesn't exist yet. Those are very different roles. Imagining and helping bring into being something that hasn't ever been seen before is very different from, here's all the stuff, now make it, now, now 
lift all the levers and ring all the bells and do everything in order, right? And keep doing that in perpetuity. Just keep doing that every day. Light the menorah, put out the showbread, sacrifice the animal, right? Just do that every day. Nothing new, nothing different. Keep it oiled, keep it working, keep it going. Very different roles. Pam? And elaborating that, that, that Bensa'el was given the raw material and Aaron the finished product. Correct. So what what does Betzal El bring to the raw material? Going to your point about his name, the Midrash says there was no diagram. We get this enigmatic instruction about the the menorah's got to have a bud and a flower and a bud and a flower. In what what does that look like? There's no drawing. Betzal El is given the instruction from presumably from Moshe. And given the raw material, how does he know how to do this? The rabbis say, look to his name. Who's L? Okay, so we know already. We know because we've been studying together for years. You know, as soon as you see this, it's got something to do with God. Okay, hold on, because that's already... The meaning, yes, but how do we? But we got to get there. So tell me another thing. Who else knows some Hebrew that can tell me something about his name? We got God in there. Uh, uh, that's Tselem, which is where you were going. That's Tselem, which gets a Ts and a L and a M, and you need all three to have image. Interesting. It's not image. What is it? What's Tsel without the M? Sadi Lamed, Tsel. Shade. What give me another word that might work better here? That cell means. Begate Salmavet. Even though I walked through the valley of the Tsel Shadow. That's Tsel. Now what about this? What do we do with the bet? In. Now tell me. Oh, in the shadow of God. In the shadow of God. How do the rabbis work with that to say, what, what does that have to do with anything in the shadow of God? That's how he knew. He was hanging out in the shadow while Moshe's on the mountain. He's in the shadow of God and is inspired to create. Because God, and we see here, right, they, they, they don't make these midrash. Well, sometimes they do this to make these midrashim up. But a lot of times they base it in the text. And it says, right, that the emaleo to ruach Elohim. And I have placed in him, says God, says El, the ruach of me. Bechochma, in wisdom. Uvitvuna. And with understanding, uvidaat. And with knowledge. And now we get a disjunctive vav. Uvachomalacha. And in all kinds of skill. They are not the same. It's not knowledge of how to engrave on stone. That's, that's the last part. And of all the skills that these require. What's the true inspiration linked to? According to God. 
Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Artists that are true geniuses are not technicians, are they? They are people who look deeply into the world, into other people, into ideas. They lean into it and see what isn't there yet exactly. Well, I shouldn't say that. They, they see and experience something that they then use their skill and their technical abilities to put out there in a way that they have created something that has never existed before. Visionary. I see something, but it doesn't mean see, but it could. Right? right. But visionary means I, I grok something, for us sci-fi fans. I grok something that, that I can only perceive when I empty. Because it's envisioning. I, it, the ruach of God to fill the artist, some, we have to get out of the way, don't we? Writer's block? How does that happen, Laura? Never had it. Never had it, so she wouldn't know. But for lesser artists, um, writer's block happens when we get up in our heads. Okay, I've got to write something clever. This has got to look good. This is this is okay. This is this is the spring edition of the Ki Quarterly. Okay, what's gonna what's gonna sound rabbinic and important and smart and insightful? Right? Nothing comes when we're filled with ourselves. Nothing comes. That's the calf. When we get out of the way and say, "All right, spring, life. Where am I now?" What am I looking right? Then when we open and get out of the way and create some space, we can be filled with Chokhmah, Da'at, Bina, all those aspects that lead us to, to creation that is the Mishkan. And that is our Parsha. So I don't, I don't want, we are actually talking about the Parsha. Um, can I just say, shouldn't we consider Gazalel then a prophet? Like Moses, he's inspired and he's in communication with Hashem. So I, I am happy to put Bezalel in the category of somebody in communication with God, right, and bringing a message. I'm happy to do that. Technically, he's not a Navi. Technically, because he's not speaking words of prophecy. So the Navi has a different role than B'Tselel. So I'm not going to say lesser, right? The Navi is filled with Ruach Elohim and then speaks a message that's very particular, right? Um, B'Tselel is led to create. So those are, they're, they're just different vehicles from the divine communicating. So yes, I, yes and no. Um, so, and, and how did I get here? Because chapter 37, you don't have to go there if you don't want. Verse 1, Bitzalel made the ark of acacia wood two and a half cubits long. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made a gold molding for it round about. He cast four gold rings for it, right, so they could carry it. Right? So we're getting Bitzalel doing the very same things in some ways that Aaron did. Right? So we've got fire, gold, wood, some kind of skill, some kind of will, and yet the results 
are polar opposites. So I want to look at, with you, a little bit of Aviva Zorenberg. <laughs> so um, in the desert, one uh, the project, the art project was making, gla cutting glass and putting it on a piece of gla clear glass to make stakes that go in the ground and are these lovely, you know, glass structures. Glass is sand and what? Oh, interesting. Sand and fire make glass. This is a common theme when we talk about creating is fire. Tell me what fire is going to have to do with the Mishkan. The Ner Tamid, so the regular flame. What else? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Taking something and Essentially, a lot of it is going to get destroyed by fire. A lot of it's going to get eaten, right? So fire can destroy, and fire can transform. Fire can destroy, fire can transform. And it is critical that something become not what it was in the fire for you to create. Art, or if you look at the tabernacle and its rituals, to create right relationship with the divine. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Fire destroys and creates. For Aviva Zorenberg, you can't, you can't have them not related. Destruction and creation. For sand to become glass, for you to have glass, sand has to go through fire and stop being sand. For gold to become a utensil, the metal that you take from the ground has to go through fire and not become that become not that solid metal, become liquid, and then be formed into something that hardens into something else. This is the key. What was has to go through the fire. There has to be some element of destruction for there to be change and for there to be beauty and for there to be transformation. Mm -hmm. Seems like human growth. Oh, seems like human growth. Mm -hmm. This, for me, this year is the point. Mm -hmm. This is the power of these stories for me this year. How do we let what needs to transform go? in order to bring the beauty that can only come after destruction. And destruction, I don't mean, has to be terrible or bad. I, or truly, I'm not there. Some, some years I am. Right now, I'm not there. Like, I'm not depressed about it. It's scary, but, right, but, but if we can think of things changing form in the fire, we tend to be like the people, don't we? Like, if it goes in the fire and it's not sand anymore, oh, no! Because transformation, we don't know what's going to be on the other side when it comes out of the fire. And that terrifies us. You know, Rabbi, you and I sometimes talk about parenting. 
anyone who's ever had a three and a half year old or a nine and a half year old or a 17 and a half year old, anybody? You have to get rid, you have to stop being a toddler to be a child. You have to stop being a child to be a teenager. You have to stop being a teenager to be an adult. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. No, I know, but you have to, even the parents and the individual have to go through the fire and let go of that stage to transform to the next stage and it is terrifying and inspiring, and it is awful, and it is wonderful, and it is this. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So look at the imaginative act, deforming images. Are you there? You know Aviva Zornberg. I think she has, I, I think she has a photographic memory. She reads something, and she's like, oh, that's like Bichelard talks about with the art. Right? And just pull, I don't know how she does this. But so she's quoting someone who's not talking about Torah, right? But about art. We always think of the imagination as the faculty that forms images. On the contrary, it deforms what we perceive. It is above all the faculty that frees us from immediate images and changes them. If there's no change or unexpected fusion of images, there is no imagination. There is no imaginative act. If the image that is present does not make us think of one that is absent, if an image does not determine an abundance, an explosion of unusual images, then there is no imagination. Thanks to the imaginary, Imagination is essentially open and elusive. It is the human psyche's experience of openness and novelty. More than any other power, it is what distinguishes the human psyche. Taking this as Torah, what was the sin of the golden calf versus the Mishkan? They didn't imagine. Mm. They did what they'd seen a million times before in Egypt. That, according to this reading, which I think is a very powerful reading, is the real crime, the real sin. You don't have the right not to grow. You don't get to stagnate and call yourself in relationship to me, says Yudhei I have called you into something else. I've called you into being something bigger, something new, something different, without familiar images attached to it, and all that goes with that, and all the interpretations that go with that, that the gods are capricious, that look out, Zeus is mad at Hera, you could get hit with a lightning bolt, which means your house could fall off the mountain in an earthquake, right? I've called you past that interpretation of reality, capital R into the imaginary act of, of imagining the open, new, novel potential that it's not capricious and that it's not lots of different powers warring with each other, that there is a mystery at the heart of reality that you can be in relationship with, that you can call into your heart if you get out of the way and let go of all the crap that you stay distracted with and familiar with, if you can get out of the way and create some space, you are called into a relationship with that invisible, I know it's crazy, invisible one force 
that if it comes through you and your communities can result in equity and justice and transformation and fairness and learning and love and loyalty to each other and to yourselves and to what's possible. You don't have a right to turn to what is only anymore. Not if you're in relationship to me. That is the ultimate betrayal, says God. You have to be called into letting that deform. And out of what you know, what's present, let it point to the absent that you don't quite know how to get your head or heart around yet. Blanche? Send our critic to San Diego. <laughs> I felt I had a critic laminated on my body. I thought everyone had it. But she taught me, she gave me permission to send this critic away. And from that, I was finally able to trust that what came to my mind was worthy and that I could represent it on paper. <coughs> my house is filled with my paintings, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience. So what if we imagine that Bitzalel is 70? What if we, because, right, what, we are not told how old he is. Because it doesn't matter, does it, what age we are. What matters is do we have the courage to send that critic to San Diego and to lean into Tevuna, Tevina and Da'at and Chochmah to our own inner wisdom, right? Our, to trust that and what it brings to us as an image and to have the courage to put that out there. That, Blanche, is what you had the courage to do. That is what Bitzalel, right? It doesn't say like he got taught by a master craftsman and studied his whole life. It says quite the opposite. It's that when he got out of the way and sent his critic to San Diego, he could be filled with Ruach Elohim. And an artist is born. Rabbi, with the Caribbean, Would the Haredim, the um, would the ultra orthodox give the same interpretation I just gave? I don't think they would have a problem with most of what I just said. Mm-hmm. Now, unleashing their interpretive ability, freeing themselves for creativity—that's what they do every time they argue and write a new midrash, and every time they argue Torah, and every time they argue a fine point of Jewish law for six hours in a row, they are doing exactly that. Now. Do they understand it that way? I think a lot of times they do. That's why you sit in a, in a shtibel and do pilpul all day. Yeah. For them, it might have been very intellectual and very much intellectual points of you know, argument about law, but they understand that as a creative act. They understand that as a, as a way of relating to the divine through, for them, the halacha. 
for them through the fine points of law. For other, you know, for us, it, it's Torah more as you know, its own literature. Um, I don't think we're doing. I think we're doing the same kind of thing. And I, I don't. I don't think they. Well, I don't know. I don't know what they think about me. Who had a hand up? Susan, I saw you move your right hand. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> um, Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this uh, to take home. I want you to sit with it uh, for a little bit, right? So um, to sit with what she's talking about. Um, but go to the second page I gave you, and we'll the, the back page. Um, it will be posted with the podcast, the front cover of her book. It's called the the word Exodus, right? Yes. So this is the particulars of rapture. Her book on, Je- on Genesis is um, The Beginnings of Desire. This book on Exodus is called The Particulars of Rapture. And her work is some of the greatest work I've ever, ever... All the way through. Okay. All the way through. And she just published the one on numbers. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where she teaches. Um, but she's absolutely brilliant. She's English. Um, okay, and Orthodox. She's a, so this is from an Orthodox woman, by the way. That's cool. Okay, so let's. I want to go to her words about it because I just think it's beautiful. So God's vision beyond the fetish. Do you are you do, are you seeing that? Okay. I'm trying to figure out where to start. As in a hologram, however, the detail of the golden calf narrative also reflects the larger structure of atomistic as against complex vision, right? Focusing in on one atomically small thing rather than the large vision. The people sin, right? So she's interpreting the sin. The people sin by excerpting a fragmentary reality, the ox, from the divine chariot empowered by four animals. In Ezekiel, the divine chariot is pulled by four animals. She points to that to say that's what they did. They took one of the four and fetishized it. They fragmented the whole and took one piece of it and pointed to that as the everything. Yeah? For our purposes, we may notice simply that the ox Kabbalistically represents din, strict justice, the sinister side of reality, desolation, and unredeemed realism. So it's not wrong, it's one flavor, right? A whole spectrum of unenchanted associations. The people select this image with its field of memories to represent the psychic intensity of the wilderness experience. Somewhat in the manner of Milton's evil, be thou my good, they select one facet of the rich divine and therefore human prism. By fixating on one image, they betray imagination. If the image, and she quotes back to where we read, right? If the present does not make us think of one that is absent, right? And 
an image does not determine an abundance, an explosion of unusual images, then there is no imagination. Here's the finishing of that sentence. A stable and completely realized image clips the wings of the imagination. So we made this point, but I want to lift up one more thing she's saying. She turns to Ezekiel and turns to a midrash that says that's the sin of the golden calf. That they, look, they took one of the four that drive the chariot, that drive reality, one of the four. And which one did they pick? The ox, which is Dean, strict justice, the hard side of reality. And I'm not talking theological implications when I say what I'm about to say, so don't take this too far, okay? Don't freak out. But Dean is, I smoke cigarettes, lung cancer is a real possibility. And I smoked, so I'm talking about me, right? So I got to live with that. I smoked for a long time. Dean is, there's a very real possibility, right, that that's how reality is created. I ingest a carcinogen and cancer can be the result. That's just reality. But that's one aspect of reality. That's the one they picked. Do you hear the beauty of this interpretation? Yeah. It's not that it's not true. It's not that it's not related to reality. But that's the one they picked to worship and to put up there as representative of all reality. That, according to Zornberg, according to the Midrash, according to our tradition, is a sin. You don't get to focus only on the parts that are real but awful. (laughs) You don't get to do that and call it reality. You can say that's one aspect and it really I'm on podcast, and it really stinks, that one aspect of reality. But it isn't the whole story. And the minute we make it the whole story, we have betrayed imagination. We have killed the possibility of our spirit, of ourselves, of our people, of this world, living into the whole realm of possibilities. What were the other three animals? I forget. (laughs) Fun, ice cream, and hope. Fun ice cream and hope. Oh. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, so according to Mr. Neiman, this is really about the presidential election. Yes. Yes. What's your vision? What, what, what are you going to vote out of if it's a very narrow, everybody in the establishment, I'm doing air quotes, everyone in the establishment is corrupt. They're all bought and paid for. They have nothing to say. You know, that is, there is parts of that that are probably true. Is that the whole truth that governs your entire decision about who's going to lead this country? That is sin. Where are the possibilities? What am I hearing from the candidate I'm going to vote for that tells me something about ice cream and hope? To quote Laura Diamond, the famous author. Right? Where, where am I hearing? Okay, so what's the policy that's going to challenge that negative part of reality that's absolutely here? What are the ways that me not being part of the establishment is going to prove to be really fruitful and helpful? Here's, here's an image. Here's a vision that I'm going to point you towards. Okay, then let's have that conversation. That's our job is to have that conversation and make the most responsible decision we can at the end of that about who's going to shape and lead the society over the next four years. Terrific. You don't get to split off one little piece and call it the whole shebang.
and say, I have done my due diligence as a voter. We ought to have that conversation, says Linda. So um, it would be very interesting to look at how the other three animals on the chariot are interpreted by the rabbis. I will try to track it down uh, by going from Zornberg's footnotes to find the Midrash that she's quoting to see the other three. Um, but I do believe it's something about so the ice cream and hope. Narrow. Right, you know, so love and, for, you know, one is Dean, strict justice, the other one is Rachamim, for sure. Because across from Dean is always Rachamim, mercy and compassion, right? So the things, the consequences we don't earn, right, that we can't earn mercy and compassion. This is the homo's charge. So law is about justice, right? That there have to be consequences. Strictly by the book. Correct. Ah, so but so for the rabbis when they're talking kabbalistically, and that's what she was quoting was. Kabbalah's interpretation, that's a Kabbalistic vision, the chariot, right? Chariot literature is the earliest Kabbalistic literature we have, by the way. So it's very early. It's already there in Ezekiel. Chariot literature is the earliest manifestation of Kabbalistic literature that we have. So for them, each of those four animals is an aspect of the divine. One of them by itself is not God. It is an aspect of the divine. And for them, Dean is strict justice. Not justice. According to the law, right? What, what has to happen according to the law? I don't care who you are. I don't care what the extenuating circumstances were. What has to happen according to the law? That is to be balanced always in the divine with, okay, but he's poor. He was trying to feed his kids. Right? One child needs medication. So there are extenuating circumstances that can be brought to all of that has to be regarded as important for it to be whole capital W capital I for it. There can't be strict There shouldn't be any system that follows only a strict interpretation of the law. That's the point. The minute you just pull that one out, you now are engaged in what we call idolatry. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't do that. Or fanaticism. You don't get to do that. You have to, you have to have all four. You have to have a full plate. You have to have balance. So this, uh, this Shabbat, Vayakel, may we, um, find the courage as Blanche pointed out the courage to get out of the way, to empty a little bit, to have a little bit of patience, <laughs> to wait past what we know and what we see as familiar, uh, that we might live into what ain't here yet. And may it be for us a blessing. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.